So what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? You know, even in today's secular age, two-thirds of Americans still identify as Christians. But if you look at the beliefs and if you look more closely at the lives of these professing Christians, well, sometimes it's hard to make out very clearly what a Christian ought to believe, how they ought to live their lives. It can be rather confusing. So stars like Kanye West... Nick Jonas, Carrie Underwood, Tom Hanks, even President Trump, they all profess to be Christians, and yet one believes that he has no sins to confess, another looks to Buddha and not the Bible for enlightenment, and another believes that faith is the key to unlocking financial success. In other words, it seems that the lives and the beliefs of many Christ followers, so to speak, often shed little light on what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So how do we recognize a true follower of Christ? How do we recognize a true one from a fake, from a fraud? For Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, for Jesus, mere profession isn't enough. So what are the marks of a genuine Christ follower? Are you this morning a genuine Christ follower? That's, friends, what I want us to be thinking about in this next 10-part series. We're beginning this morning through the Gospel of Mark, a sermon series we've titled Following Jesus. Now, three years ago, we began the book of Mark. We preached through the first half of it, and then we took a break. And it's hard to imagine, but that was in the fall of 17, and that was three years ago, during which time Jesus pretty much had his entire public ministry while we've been out of the book. But now we're coming back to the book three years later, and if you remember, when we were first in it, we looked at those, the first half, the first eight chapters, they were all consumed with that question of Jesus' identity. So, for example, back in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is preaching, well, it electrified the crowds such that even evil spirits cowered and bowed before Jesus' word, and it left everyone asking. Chapter 1, verse 27, right? Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Or in chapter 4, verse 41, Jesus shouts into a raging storm, and it ceases, Right, the disciples were cowering in the stern, and what are they asking? Right, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? In chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, Herod decides to put together a little work group, try to get some pollsters on the phone, calling homes. And after six chapters, the results of those polls are coming in. And some say Jesus is Elijah. Others say he's a prophet. Others suggest, well, maybe Jesus is, is John the Baptist. Right? But people from every walk of life are asking that same question. Who is Jesus? But nobody seems to have the answer. And then finally, toward the end of chapter 8, it clicks for Peter. And he answers Jesus when he says, who do you say that I am? Peter answers, chapter 8, verse 29, you are the Christ. The Christ. 
Now remember when we say sort of Jesus Christ, we're not saying Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. No, Jesus is his name. Christ is a title. It's a title. It's like someone pointing to me and saying, look, there's Brad, the pastor. So Christ is a title. So when Peter calls him that, he's calling him the Messiah. He's calling Jesus the anointed one. In other words, he's recognizing Jesus as the promised deliverer and king of God's people. The one that the Old Testament longed for and looked forward to. And when he calls Jesus the Christ, Jesus doesn't say, you know, oh shucks Peter, I'm awfully flattered. I'm honored you would think so highly of me but that's just aiming a little too high. No, Jesus accepts it. He doesn't reject that ascription. He accepts that ascription of Peter to him as the Christ, as the Messiah. And that right there is the great turning point in the book. It's where the first half of Mark ends, and it's where the second half, as we begin this morning, it's where that begins. His identity now established Jesus Well, he sets his eyes toward Jerusalem to complete the task. He's come and he's seeking to to finish off. So in chapter 8, verse 31, 831 all the way through chapter 10, that marks the journey of Jesus with the disciples to Jerusalem. And then once they get to Jerusalem in chapter 11, all the way through chapter 16, sort of everything slows down and you get that last week in Jerusalem. And so this series we're beginning this morning is really the first half of the second half of the book. 831 all the way through chapter 10 where Jesus takes his disciples and begins to walk them toward Jerusalem. Now the disciples, now that they know who he is, this is the key thing, now they know who he is, well, they're still left to understand what kind of savior he will be. Right? They know who he is, but what kind of savior will he be? That's really the burning question here in these chapters. So think of the road to Jerusalem, which is this series. Think of this road to Jerusalem as a kind of classroom. It's a kind of classroom where they're going to learn what Jesus' Messiahship means for their own discipleship. All right, so what is Jesus' Messiahship? Yeah, he is the Christ. What does that mean for their own discipleship? So what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? What does it demand of all those who will follow him? Well, that's what 831 through 1052 are all about. Again, that's what we'll be thinking through. So I want to invite you this morning to, uh, to walk with me as we join the disciples with Jesus journeying toward Jerusalem. And we pick up chapter 8, verse 31. Peter has just confessed Jesus as the Christ. And we pick up eight, chapter 8, verse 31. And we're just going to read through verse 33. And he, referring to Jesus, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
So friends, what does it mean to follow Jesus? I think three demands we see from the text. I'll just give you the outline right up front. Following Jesus demands, first, we listen to his word. Following Jesus, first demands, we listen to his word. But following Jesus demands, secondly, that we accept his witness. Secondly, that we accept his witness. And third, that we submit to his wisdom. Right? We submit to his wisdom. So those three things right there. Following Jesus, we listen to his word, accept his witness, submit to his wisdom. So first, following Jesus' demands, we listen to his word. That we listen to his word. So I wonder, when you think of Jesus, right, what image comes to mind? What image comes to mind? Perhaps a healer? Maybe a miracle worker? Maybe you're even thinking of Jesus, you know, the one who's uh, overturning the tables of the money changers. You're thinking of Jesus kind of the rabble rouser? Well, just recognize more than anything else, Jesus was, first and foremost, he was a teacher. He was a teacher. That, in fact, was his central mission. So the start of his public ministry in Mark, it begins, and the first thing Jesus does is he walks into his synagogue, and what does he do? He starts teaching, we read, Mark 1.21. And then he goes on to heal a man miraculously, and you'd think that miraculous healing would be the talk of the town. You'd think that's what everyone would be fixated upon, but instead, we read that what amazed the people most was actually not the healing, but it was his teaching, Mark 1.27. Such that when the crowds come, In chapter 2, verse 13, we don't find Jesus putting on a magic show. He's not performing some skit. He's not singing for them. He's not doing that. No, he's, he's teaching them. And this is what we read over and over and over in the book of Mark. Jesus going around from village to village, and he's teaching, Mark 6, 6. Which means if you've come this morning, if you've come this morning and you consider yourself more a skeptic of Christianity... If you want to understand Jesus, who he is, you need to first look not at his miracles, not even at what he did, but if you've come as a skeptic, you really need to first look at what he said, at what he said, because everything Jesus did was actually meant to corroborate and to authenticate and to validate what he said. Jesus' words are in that sense inseparable from his person. Jesus himself is the message that he proclaims. So again, if you're a skeptic, let me just encourage you. If you you want to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, don't look to Hollywood, don't look to Capitol Hill, don't look to Nashville either though. So no offense to you country music lovers. Nashville's not super helpful when it comes to what does it look like to follow Jesus. So I was just reading some lyrics this weekend. Michael Ray's Real Men Love Jesus. Any of you guys know that song? Real Men Love Jesus? Okay, I'm kind of glad I'm not seeing a lot of hands. Trace Atkins, Jesus and Jones. Anyone know that one? Well, those songs, apparently quite popular in the eyes of some, they actually tell you shockingly little about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of like, those songs are reason 1001 and 2. I don't listen to country music. That's for another time. We can debate that later. (laughs) I'm just saying, don't take other people's opinions of Jesus, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's Nashville, whatever it might be. Instead, look at his own words. If you want to know what it looks like to follow him. 
So I've often found that some of the craziest things people say about Jesus are from people who've actually read nothing of Jesus. Don't be one of those people. If you're a skeptic, let me just encourage you to pick up a gospel and read for your own. Listen, if you don't happen to have a Bible, we have some back at Connecting Point. I made sure they would be there. Let that be our gift to you. Just grab one as you go. Take it and read the gospels. Read about them for yourselves. Study what Jesus actually had to say about him, not just what other people had to say about him. Because part of what I want us to observe, verse 31, and it's really illustrated rather in verse 31, is how this teaching ministry of Jesus was the priority of his, of his ministry, which is why at the heart of Christian ministry is what? Well, it's word ministry. It's word ministry. It's at the heart of what the disciples did. They gathered around and they listened to Jesus. It marked the heart of their ministries as we go into the book of Acts, right? They went to people and they taught people about this Jesus who himself had taught them, right? That was all per the Great Commission. Two weeks ago we thought, right, what's the mission of the church? It's to make disciples by what? By first declaring, right? By teaching. It's why word ministry, right? It's at the heart of what I do. It's at the heart of what we do when we gather together as a church, But recognize word ministry should be the heart of of all of our ministry as a body. So take children's ministry. Children's ministry is about word ministry. Some of them are even running up toward me now over here if you missed that on your left. It's about word ministry. It's not about entertainment. It's not just about distraction, right? Story time to coloring time. It's all meant to soak their young souls in the word. Discipling ministry in the church ought to be about word ministry. So if you say that you're discipling someone, but never open God's word together, you're doing something. I'm just not sure it's biblical discipling. Music is a form of word ministry. Recognize our primary organs as Christians. They're not our eyes. They're not our ears. Well, just back up. Fix that. They're not our eyes. They're not our noses. They are rather, right? They are our ears and our mouths. Our ears and our mouths. Speaking and receiving God's word to one another. That's at the heart of what Christian ministry is all about. Which means the disciple, the one who claims to follow Christ, Right, the disciple who does not prioritize listening to the word and who in fact finds no delight in God's word. Well, that person may be a disciple and is indeed a disciple of something or of someone, but probably not a disciple of Jesus. Probably not a disciple of Jesus. Because following Jesus demands we first listen to his word. But second, it demands we accept his witness. It demands that we accept his witness. What did Jesus teach them about himself? Verse 31. Well, he taught them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, right? And be rejected, and be killed, and three days rise again. Now that expression there, that expression son of man, that's a title we actually saw twice back in Mark when we studied it three years ago, all the way back in chapter two. We see it twice back in chapter two. And it's actually a title that Jesus ascribes to himself. And that expression can generically mean kind of 
a person, a fellow, a man. But in the next two chapters we're going to be in, Jesus is going to use it seven more times, again, of himself as he walks with the disciples toward Jerusalem. And it seems Jesus grabs this title precisely because the title was, it was ambiguous. It was ambiguous. It didn't come with preconceptions. It didn't come with various connotations. In other words, it didn't come with a kind of bias embedded in it. So when people ask, for example, who I am and what I do, it's the dreaded question when you're a pastor, by the way. Like, I used to be fine telling people what I did. I hate telling people now. But when I'm asked, right, I could say, I'm a fundamentalist Baptist pastor. I could say that. And recognize, technically, it's true. It's absolutely true of me. But many today, if I opened with, who are you? And I said, well, I'm a fundamentalist Baptist pastor. Well, they would just assume I'm some kind of obscurantist, anti-intellectual Right? I'm probably some fundamentalist, right-wing extremist. Right? Who knows what they think? But probably something along those lines. But just recognize historically, like going back to the early 20th century, historically, fundamentalists were simply those who affirmed five truths about the scriptures that some of the modernists rejected. So, for example, the fundamentalists believe, one, in the inerrancy of the Bible. Two, in a little creation and literal miracles by Christ, right? Not myth, not history. They believe three in the virgin birth, four in the bodily resurrection and the bodily return of Christ, and fifth in Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. Those were just the simple five things that fundamentalists believe. And in that sense, every member of UBC is a fundamentalist. Someone says hallelujah, amen. But because that term is so confused, if I lead out with I'm a fundamentalist Baptist pastor, no doubt, a good number of them are going to think I'm some kind of a snake handler, some kind of guy who hates science, thinks women can't wear jeans, you know, whatever it might be. That's just the connotation because of the embedded biases in the word. But if I were to say, you know what, I'm a teacher, which sometimes I do, and I feel kind of badly because I feel like it's slightly deceiving, but if I say I'm a teacher, then I get to explain what I mean by that. It doesn't have all the biases and all the connotations. It's more ambiguous. So I get to set the agenda and clarify what I do and what I don't mean. Well, just recognize when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, that's exactly what he's doing. He's grabbing a somewhat ambiguous term so he can import all the meaning that they need to receive without outside biases already prejudicing them. So, for example, when the disciples hear Christ, so when Peter proclaims Jesus as the Christ, They're thinking Messiah, they're thinking Davidic dynasty, they're thinking kingdom, they're thinking power, they're thinking Israel being restored to her rightful place in the world. They're thinking of a political monarchy where Jesus is going to ascend a throne and he is going to crush the Romans. So they're thinking victory, honor, prestige, power, glory, lots and lots and lots of glory. That's what they're thinking when they hear that word Christ. So when Peter professes Jesus as the Christ in 829, and Jesus responds effectively in chapter 8, verse 30, and he says, shh, keep your voices down. we got to keep that top secret. When that's Jesus' response, the disciples are like, yes! 
all right, I knew we hitched our car to the right train. This is the Messiah. This is the one that's going to stomp the Romans. That's what they're thinking. Which is what makes Jesus' words next so confusing. Because what does he say? He says, in fact, the Son of Man is the one who must suffer. He must suffer many things. And they're thinking, suffer? Wait, time out. Like, how does a suffering one put the smack down on the Romans? How does that work? But not just does he suffer many things, but what? He's rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. So the elders would have comprised the 70 lay members of the ruling religious council. So those elders would have been Pharisees and they would have been Sadducees both on that elder group. The chief priests would have been made up of sort of the high priest and then all of the previous chief priests and all of their family. And then the scribes, well, they were like the legal experts. So in the same way that we have experts on constitutional law, well, they had their own experts on the Mosaic law that advised the rest of the group. And those were the scribes. And together, when you've got the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, together those three groups make the Sanhedrin. They make up the Sanhedrin. That is the official seat of religious power among the Jews. So when Jesus says he's going to be rejected by the Sanhedrin, in effect, like the seat of religious power in Israel, that's like being rejected from all three branches of government, right? Executive, legislative, judicial, getting rejected by all of them. There couldn't be a more comprehensive and a more resounding objection than the kind of objection and rejection Jesus says he will receive. No teacher has any shot of legitimacy if he's going to be rejected by all three groups, right? That would ensure Jesus was a nobody, a has-been, some religious quack who would quickly disappear off the pages of history. And the disciples at this point are, whoa, hey, wait, Jesus, like, remember us, we dropped everything to follow you. Everything we dropped to follow you. The past few years, all for this? I mean, the ire of our families? All the friends we left behind? Our business associates? Right? Our lucrative businesses, we walked away from all of that? What are they going to say about us now? What about all those long days? What about all those cold nights? I mean, these guys are on like their sixth pair of Chacos, right? They've been wandering everywhere with Jesus. They're going to be the laughing stock, and they know it. They can't reject Jesus, because what does it mean for the rest of Jesus' followers? And it just gets worse, because then he says he's going to be killed. Be killed. Friends, it's right there we have the first of three predictions of Jesus' death, really, in, in the book. But particularly in this section where they are marching toward Jerusalem, there are these three predictions of Jesus' death. Now, he hinted at it, like, obscurely back in 220, but one of the things that marks this section is Jesus is no longer speaking a more obscure, veiled language, kind of like he did with parables, but he's speaking more openly, more plainly. We even say that. We even read it from the text. It says there right at the start of verse 32. And... This section of walking to Jerusalem is actually framed around those three predictions Jesus makes about his own death. You have this one here, you have another in chapter 9, verse 30, a third one in chapter 10, verse 32, and they're going to, again, set the, the framework, really the tone and the foundation for all that Jesus is going to say about himself and what it looks like to follow him. 
But for Peter, that's all too much. That's too much to stomach. Because saviors, right, saviors don't die. No, the Messiah is the undisputed champion who's supposed to deliver them from all of their oppressors, right? He's like Daniel LaRusso before Cobra Kai. So we were watching Karate Kid with our kids, hence the reference. Right, in other words, he's the, he's the one who takes on all the big dogs and conquers them all and wins, right? One man does it all. That's the Messiah. They're kings. Kings rule, kings conquer. Messiahs put their enemies in the ground. Messiahs don't end up in the ground. Messiahs who die, that's what you call a false messiah. But friend, notice what Jesus is doing. When Jesus, as he calls himself the Son of Man, when Jesus, the Son of Man, says he's the Christ who will also suffer many things, who will become a scandal and a stumbling block to his people, what is he doing? He's connecting the Christ, the conquering Davidic king, with the suffering servant of Isaiah. Right, what Rebecca read earlier in the service, Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, he's saying the, the conquering king and the suffering servant are one and the same person, this son of man. Both of those strands coalesce, they come together in me. Now later he's going to connect the son of man to that victorious figure in Daniel 7, but that only comes once they get into Jerusalem. The disciples won't see that just yet. But Peter, I mean, Peter has no concept that the conquering Christ will first be a crucified Christ, that the reigning Messiah will first be the rejected Messiah, that victory will come through defeat, that life comes through death. He's going to say it in the next verses. You're going to have to give up your life, right, if you want to save it, so to speak. So, but Peter, doesn't have, he can't stomach, doesn't have a concept for it. And yet exactly that is the witness Jesus is calling Peter and the disciples to accept. If they're ever going to understand his mission, they must understand that witness Jesus makes about himself. So friends, I just want to note a few things, a few things about Jesus if we are ever to understand him rightly. And that is first, just most plainly, you have to accept, you must accept this witness Jesus makes about himself. Jesus did not leave his identity up for grabs. I know there's a lot of confusion about that. People talk and they use language like, my, my Jesus would never do that. Or my Jesus would never say that. Just recognize there is no your Jesus and my Jesus. There's just Jesus. What he says. And Jesus is very clear about who he is. Many didn't like the clarity with which Jesus spoke. In fact, they were offended by it because they understood it so clearly. They understood his claims. And we have to let the testimony of Jesus about himself stand. And what's most astounding, friend, what is most astounding in these verses about what Jesus said to his disciples? Just think about that for a moment. What's most astounding about what he said? 
It's not that he said he was going to suffer. It's not that he said he would even be rejected. It's not even that he said he would die, though that is astounding for the disciples. It's that, what, after three days he's going to rise again. I mean, that's what's most astounding about what Jesus says. Rabbis don't rise again. Scribes and Pharisees don't rise again. Kings don't even do that. Nobody gets up from the grave. But Peter, notice Peter doesn't seem to care about that because he already had a box for Jesus. And he had predetermined what that Jesus box was going to look like. And if Jesus, his Jesus, wouldn't fit into that predetermined box, then he rejected him. In other words, because of Peter's own biases, because of his own prejudices, he couldn't hear and see the true Jesus. You know, to this day, friends, Jewish theologians reject the Jesus of the scriptures as the Messiah because they have no concept, like Peter and the disciples here have no concept, that the Messiah, the Savior, would conquer through a cross. It was scandalous. It is still scandalous to Jews today that the rejected Messiah is now the reigning Messiah because he is the resurrected Messiah. And Jesus is saying, listen, if that's you, just dump your box, right? Just throw your box away because I am so much bigger, so much grander, so much more glorious than that little box you've constructed for yourself that what you think about me. Friends, so again, if you're coming this morning, you're coming as a skeptic to Christianity, gospels are a great place to look at Jesus. And just could it be, if you're a skeptic, that your own biases, your own cultural assumptions prevent you from seeing who Jesus really is? Jesus' claims are particularly unnerving. I get it. I know they're unnerving. When I first read the Gospels, I didn't like Jesus. He said lots of unnerving things that I didn't agree with. But here's the problem. If they're true, if they're true, there is no other alternative but to bow the knee to him. There's just no other alternative and if you're a skeptic, the question Jesus is asking is, will you? Will you bow the knee to him? Friend, that begins, that understanding, it starts by recognizing Jesus' claim uniquely to be the Son of God, the one who came to die on the cross in the place of sinners. It's exactly where he's going to go to by the end of, of chapter 10. Jesus came into this world in love to die on the cross for sinners. And then he rose again from the grave, victorious over death, to prove that God had accepted that sacrifice of Jesus for sinners, so that all who will first recognize their sin and confess their sin and repent of it and place their faith in Jesus these ones can be forgiven. They can be reconciled to God. That is the word of the gospel, the testimony about Jesus that you must believe, that we all must believe if we're ever going to be reconciled to God. But if you're a Christian this morning in this room, just notice that Peter, he's so angered, he's so maddened by what Jesus has to say that he can't even hear the most remarkable thing about the prophecy. 
He can't even hear it. Friend, I wonder if you, at any points in your Christian life, are so bothered by Jesus' own teaching, so frustrated by some event in your life, so fixated on those things that haven't gone your way, that you miss the promises of God in your pain. That's exactly what's happened to Peter. He's missed those promises. Peter's so maddened by what he's not getting, he can't even see what God is giving him, what God is holding out to him, the gift staring him right in the face. Oh, if you're a believer this morning in Christ, could that possibly be you? Could that be you? But I think a second thing we just need to to recognize from these verses is Jesus, he just can't be liked. He cannot just be liked. So notice when Jesus spoke, he generated one of two responses. You will either throw yourself at his feet. That's response one. You throw yourself at his feet or you will throw one at his face. It's just one or the other. One or the other. You are either attracted to him or you are repelled by him. Nobody ever remained neutral to Jesus. There are only those two responses. You will either crown him or you will kill him. That's it. And that's what we see every time when Jesus speaks. There's no moral neutrality. People hear his word And they do one of two things. They either crown him or they kill him. And right now, in your own life, you are doing one of those two things. In your life, you are either crowning Jesus as Lord or you are seeking to destroy him. But third, notice Jesus' death. It wasn't just a tragic accident. It wasn't some tragic accident. So these are three things I want us to notice about the witness of Jesus. Right, he wasn't, as one popular modern scholar put it, a mere mortal who threw himself at the wheel of human history only to have it turn upon him and crush him. That's actually not the picture at all we get of Jesus in the Gospels. So when Jesus says he must suffer, he's more specifically saying, as the Christian Standard Bible puts it, the CSB, it is necessary that I suffer. Now, the disciples expected some hardship, but what's new is the conviction that Jesus' death will not come from the triumph of any opposition, but it's rather the fulfillment of his divine mission. That's the new thing. That's what they're not grasping. This is actually, in fact, part of the predetermined plan of God that Jesus, the Son of God, would suffer. Jesus wanted them to know. He wanted them to know so that On that fateful day, you know, when that fateful day would come, and when it would come to pass, they would remember that his death and his suffering was actually part of his plan. He wants them to look back at teaching like this, because the crucifixion is not some mistake. It's not a tragedy. It was a divine necessity. Human tragedies, we speak of tragedies. It's not like that. It is actually a, it is a necessity, right? The cross before the crown Now, this isn't just going to be the way of Jesus. Next week, we're going to think this is actually the way of all who would follow him as well. And friend, just notice now, while that won't change the reality of our suffering, 
It ought to change the way we approach it, the way we engage it, the way we find strength to endure under such suffering. Following Jesus demands that we accept his witness. Listen to his word first, accept his witness second, and third, submit to his wisdom. Thirdly, following Jesus demands we submit to his wisdom, which, friends, is always easier said than done, isn't it? Because Jesus was effectively announcing to the disciples, guys, I'm going to lose. I'm going to lose. And even worse, he's inviting them to lose alongside him. He's saying, guys, guess what? You've sacrificed everything for a losing cause. So just imagine, right, it's football time. Razorback football coach Sam Pittman. Imagine this is his recruiting strategy, all right? We're going to lose. I plan on it. Winning's overrated. We're going to lose. So come, join the U of A, sacrifice everything, and lose with me. Imagine that is Pittman's recruiting strategy. You're probably thinking, you know what, thanks, but no thanks, I'm going to sign with Alabama, right? You're not going to sign up for that. Saying in advance you plan to lose is not a winning strategy, which is why Peter is so upset. And it's why he pulls Jesus aside and sees the need to give Jesus a little heart-to-heart conversation. That expression took him aside in verse 32, that conveys a sense of superiority. Kind of like a player is coming off the field because he's just blown a bat, like blown a play big time. Coach calls him off the field, grabs him by the collar, pulls him just out of earshot so we can get in his ear and have a little heart to heart. That's in effect what Peter is doing with Jesus. Yeah, he's doing this with Jesus. Just as Jesus began to teach him and all of them in verse 31, now Peter has flipped the tables and notice he begins to rebuke him. The irony, of course, is this word rebuke is used of Jesus with like evil spirits back earlier in Mark. It's as if Peter thinks Jesus is somehow inhabited now by an evil spirit, so he has to rebuke him. Well, God of love impetuous Peter, right? This is the guy that is never lacking for self-confidence. Never lacking. He's like the kid who's just finished learning his multiplication tables, and now he thinks he can correct Einstein on his theory of relativity. Hey, Albert, your math's a little off. It needs to look like this. That's effectively what Peter's doing. And he's been a bumbling idiot, frankly, almost all of the disciples, bumbling idiots throughout most of the gospel. And yet, Peter gets one question right. And now, he thinks he can instruct the Son of God on how he is to rule the world. I mean, the irony is so thick. Because Peter, in effect, this is what he's saying to Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, listen. Listen, this is not how the plan goes. I've got it all mapped out, right? This dying stuff, this rejection stuff, it's not good for numbers. It's not good for recruitment. It doesn't help morale. So we've we've got to get rid of this. Enough of this foolishness about suffering and, and dying. The cross before the crown. Listen, I've done some pollings. And you know what? That campaign slogan, the cross before the crown, it doesn't sit well with the voters. 
They don't really like it. No, as we march toward Jerusalem, our messaging, Peter is saying, our mission, Jesus, it needs to be more positive, more encouraging, more hopeful, Jesus, less pessimistic. It needs to look like this, Peter is saying. And yet it's in that moment we read that Jesus turns. And what does he do? He looks at the other disciples. He turns and he looks at the other disciples. And it's likely they understood what was going on. It's likely they felt a lot like Peter. It's possible they elected Peter to go have the conversation with Jesus. We're not really sure. Now, we are not told what's going on in Peter's head, or rather in Jesus' head, in Jesus' head, but a conjecture. This is just a conjecture. No specific textual evidence. But I think there's a good chance that Jesus looked at those confused men who were acting like lost sheep without a shepherd. He looked at their helpless state and he was moved by pity and by compassion and by love because in their sin and with this understanding, these guys don't stand a chance. Without him and without the cross, they are destitute. They will forever be in their sin. They will be devoured like wolves and he sees it all in that moment. Jesus, friends, he did not have a death wish. He didn't delight in. He wasn't overjoyed about all that lay before him. And yet we know in John eleven thirty six, 36, why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? It was because he loved him. It was because he loved him. John 15, 13, it was Jesus who said, greater love has no one than this, than that he lay his life down for his friends. Or John 13, 1, we read of Jesus having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. But love compelled Jesus. Love motivated Jesus. It was for love that he ascended that cross and hung in agonizing misery. In the words of Augustine, the cross was the pulpit in which Christ preached his love to the world. The cross was that pulpit where Christ preached his love to the world. And so Jesus sees them, and he sees them, and yet in this ear he's got Peter whispering to him, whispering to him of this crown without a cross. There Peter is laying out a path to success without all of the suffering. You can have everything Peter is saying. All the kingdoms of the world, you can have it all if you just listen to me, listen to my plan, follow my plan. Does that sound at all familiar? Friends, that's exactly what Satan said. Isn't that exactly what Satan said to Jesus in the wilderness in his third temptation, in that final temptation, when he comes to him, Satan does. Satan, remember, takes Jesus up onto the mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says, Jesus, all of these kingdoms, they can be yours if you just worship me, if you follow me. There is another way. There is a way to the crown without the cross, and I will show you that way. That is exactly what Peter is doing, which is why Jesus turns to them all, and he looks at Peter, but in front of them all, he says, get behind me, Satan. 
Because in that moment, Peter, he's just a tool of him. He's just a tool of the devil. You know, when the devil can't get his way, sometimes he dupes disciples to speak for him. It's exactly what's happened with Peter. It's why Jesus rebukes him in the way he does and even uses the very same expression here that he uses towards Satan in Matthew 4.10. It's the very same language connecting those two stories. Jesus and Peter, you know, if, if you'll permit this, Jesus and Peter are, if you will, at, a, at cross purposes, right? Jesus and Peter at cross purposes, since at the heart of their disagreement is the cross, right? It is the cross. For Peter, any suggestion that the Son of Man could die this way is unthinkable. For Jesus, it's inevitable. It's why he says, you're not thinking of the things of God, but the things of man, Now, of course, we might expect Jesus to respond to Peter and say, listen, you're not thinking about the things of God, but the things of Satan. That's actually not what he says. Because Jesus equates Peter's satanic thinking with human thinking. Because in the New Testament, who is Satan? But Satan is, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is the God of this world. He's the God of this world. This world, again, is not morally neutral when it comes to Jesus it naturally aligns with Satan. And here's where Jesus is calling Peter not only to listen to his word and to accept his witness, he's saying, Peter, you've got to submit to my wisdom. Peter, you have to submit to my wisdom because when you side with me, says Jesus, you are submitting to a suffering Messiah. I know you expected God's kingdom to come in power and to come in majesty and to come in glory, but first that kingdom will come in rejection and in humiliation and in shame. And that's a tough pill to swallow because remember Peter's thinking, I didn't sign up for this. I thought we bet on the right horse, right? This guy is taking us places. They thought they had found the winning candidate. You see, all the disciples They think they're marching toward the White House. That's where they think they're going. And we're going to see in chapter 10, they're already arguing about who gets what cabinet position. They're already having that conversation with one another. They're already picking out their office furniture. They're already thinking about the new suits they're going to need. What do you mean, Jesus? You're going to lose. You're going to be rejected. You're going to die. That's not, again, what I signed up for. But when we side with Jesus, we submit to his wisdom. And in his wisdom, suffering comes before success. The cross comes before the crown. Which means in this life, friend, as believers in Jesus, we need to be prepared to lose. We got to be prepared to lose. And that's a hard thing because Christians, like we, we want and we're often accustomed to winning. You know, in our own nation, Christianity has held a kind of pride of place. And so long as it's biblical Christianity, I actually think that's been a unique blessing to our nation. I don't pray that that changes. But I also recognize such pride of place is, in history, a great anomaly. It's highly unusual. And our culture is rapidly changing. So will Amy Coney Barrett, will she be confirmed as the next justice of the Supreme Court? Will there be another champion for life? Will there be a champion for one 
for those who are too powerless to fight for themselves? Will there be a champion for the free exercise of religion, including Christianity, but not just Christianity, including Judaism and Islam and the others? Well, I hope so. I mean, personally, I hope so. But as Wes prayed, I thought so well in the pastoral prayer, that's not finally our hope. It's not finally where our hope lies. And in this life, the message of Jesus is, hey, disciples, be prepared to suffer, be prepared to lose. It's often gonna look like you're losing, but don't fret finally. Don't worry finally, because before all is said and done, Jesus says, I'm gonna flip the tables. I will, I'll flip the tables. I have risen, he's gonna say. I have risen, and I reign, and I'm coming again. So hang in there. You see, true liberation, it does not come through education, as so many religions teach. It is not through legislation, as sometimes we're tempted to believe. True liberation is certainly not through coercion. It's not through military domination, as Islam does specifically teach. Liberation comes through death and resurrection. That's where it comes. And we, of all people, have to have our hopes in the right place and in this Jesus. Because the reigning Messiah will first be the rejected Messiah before he is the risen Messiah. Friend, is he your Messiah? Is this Jesus your Messiah? He can be if you listen to his word, accept his witness, and submit to his wisdom. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray and we pray that the testimony of Jesus and the witness of Jesus' own words, sometimes as challenging as they can be and yet as compelling as they are, oh God, we pray that they would humble us. We pray that we would not have the kind of biases, whether or not we come here as Christians or non-Christians, we wouldn't have the kind of biases that would prevent us. We would harden our hearts against your word and against this Jesus. Oh God, help us to embrace him all that he says, all that he has done, and all that he promises that he will do. And we pray this in his name. Amen.